Hello, everyone, and welcome to Journey to Success Radio, a show featuring people and companies who are making a positive contribution to the world. This show will help you learn how to apply success principles in every area of your life so that you can make the most out of your skills and talents and accomplish more of your goals. To find out more about the show, please visit www.journeytosuccessradio.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Journey to Success Radio. My name is Tom Tutal Cunningham. I'm a Napoleon Hill Foundation Certified Instructor and Resiliency Expert. And uh, you can find out more about me in this radio show at the website, journeytosuccessradio.com. My guest today is Paul Weston. He was born in Yorkshire, England. Uh, You'll soon be able to tell from his accent. His early interest in life were music and sport, and at the age of 16, he joined the Royal Marines Band Service as a winds and string player. He was commissioned to an officer in 1996. He passed uh, special duties office training and served as a director of music and general service staff officer around the globe. And in 2005, he left the military and immigrated to Canada. Uh, what I consider the greatest country in the world, and in 2006 formed Tempo One Solutions, a consultancy aimed at helping companies develop effective leadership and management practices. His sporting passions include rugby, cricket, golf, windsurfing, snowboarding, and endurance sports, and in 2014 he attempted his first ever triathlon after which he entered the 2015 Muskoka Ironman. Ah, I've been up there. Which he completed in 13 hours and 50 minutes, raising over $4,000 for the Canadian Cancer Society. He followed up with the Mont Tremblant Ironman in 2016, and he raised over $4,000 for the Arthritis Society, and that's where I found out about him. Welcome to the show today, Paul. Thanks, Tom. Great to be on air. That's uh, if you love running Ironmans anyway and triathlons, to do it for a charity must uh, be even more motivating for you, and certainly a great benefit for the charities you choose. It is. It's uh, it's something I've always had an interest in um, doing things that uh, challenge me, and at the same time looking at multiple opportunities to uh, to create something not only personal um, achievement through. Um, what I'm trying to do through the event, but also to raise some money. I guess it started back in uh, the early 1999, 2000, I guess. A good close friend of mine was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And I mm. did a few 10-mile runs on the south coast in England, the Great South Run. It's a wonderful event. I'd raised a little bit of money for, uh, for multiple sclerosis. And in 2001, I threw my hat in the ring for the London Marathon. And I was a little bit alarmed Ooh. in December to get a letter telling me that... Um, uh, you're in. It's in April, April the 14th. So then all the training ramped up, and I put together my fundraising, and uh, I think it was around £3,500, which was a reasonable amount of money back in 2003 in the UK. And that's really where I got uh, got kind of the buzz for uh, for doing events and starting to raise some money for worthy causes. Nice, nice. Now, everyone's probably heard of triathlons, and boy, I really admire anyone who does triathlons. My wife's uh, boss who passed away a few years ago, she did them, and 
amazing lady. But what's the difference between a triathlon and an Ironman triathlon? Well, the disciplines are the same. It's a swim, uh, a bike, and a cycle. Uh, the Ironman triathlon was started, I think, guess nearly 40 years ago in Kona, in Hawaii, the big island in Hawaii, and there were three major events. There was uh, a long swim, which is two and a half miles or 3.8 kilometers, as we say in Canada. The other two events were a 180-kilometer or 112-mile bike race, and then a full marathon on the island, which is 42-kilometer run or 26.5-mile run. And then some wise guy had an idea to, uh, why don't we combine all of them in one day? You have to do all three of these events in, in one day, and if you do it, uh, you can officially call yourself an Ironman. So that's where it started, and it's all over the world now. Most major countries in the world have uh, bought into the Ironman uh, principle, the concept, and it's, it's a branded name, it's the rights, and it's, uh, it's a major event with a 17-hour time cap. Not only do you have to complete all three components, you have to do them in a specific time uh, limit of 17 hours in total, but you also have to complete each stage within a time cap. So the swim is uh, two and a half miles. You have to be out of the water within two hours and 20 minutes. Bike, I think you have about six and oh, maybe seven, eight hours to complete the bike, and then you have to finish the run by midnight. But there's cutoffs at three points in the bike and a couple of points in the run as well. So not only do you have to finish it in 17 hours, you have to have a good balance of, uh, of your ability to complete each phase of the of the three components as well. Ah, so you can't be amazing at two and suck at one. No, if you're a really bad swimmer and then you think you're going to make it up on the run and the bike, there are people who uh, who actually get out of the water and say, "Sorry, you've uh, you've timed out in the water," and they're the greatest, oh. uh, the greatest cyclists you can imagine. But it's it's a true test of uh, your ability in all three disciplines. If you're weak in one area, you're just not going to do it. And some people who are great cyclists who really struggle with the run, you know, they they really struggle to finish the marathon after they've been. Or sometimes. Of course, if you don't pace yourself, a lot of people will say, oh, I had a fantastic bike split. My bike time was fantastic, and their run was terrible. Uh, you just sort of blow out early on the on the bike. It's uh, very strategic. It's not just uh, fitness and going for it. It's very strategic how you pace yourself as well. Hmm. So uh, you caught my interest because the Arthritis Society promoted the uh, Ironman you ran uh, at Mont Tremblant. What a beautiful location. Uh, how did you come across the Arthritis Society as a cause? A couple of, um, couple of angles in really on this. Um, first of all, I run a consultancy where we, we specialize in leadership development and management practice training, those sorts of things. And uh, we have a fairly strong focus on the uh, non-for-profit sector. Uh, we realize that non-for-profits don't always have the budget to engage their staff and develop their staff as much as the corporate world may. So. My company and one of the companies I work with, Crestcom International, a global company, um, we always are looking for uh, you know ways to help out with non-for-profit organizations. So about four years ago, um, I started doing some work with Canadian Cancer Society, and that's where I hooked up with them in 2015 and raised some money for them. And then the Arthritis Society, uh, we were referred to them by the Cancer Society and started doing some work with arthritis. And from my own perspective as well, um, been in the military for many years and been a very keen rugby player for many years. Uh, it takes a toll on the body, and um, I have been suffering with osteoarthritis in my knees, my shoulder, my lower back, and my neck for many years. And it got to the stage about five years ago where if I wanted to go out on my bike for an hour, I really struggled just to cycle for an hour, never mind for 180 kilometers. And um, I was having to have cortisone injections in my knees. Uh, 
to reduce the swelling just so I could get on my bike. And if I cycled for an hour, I couldn't even walk up the stairs when I got home. It was, it was getting terrifically bad. And I was recommended certain uh, drugs and pharmaceuticals to help me out with that. And um, I didn't really want to do that. Uh, I wanted to look at other avenues. And uh, I, I looked at my diet and uh, looked at the way the food I was eating. And I tried something called the paleo diet, paleolithic diet, which reduces wheat or takes wheat and grains and dairy out of your diet completely and I found it was it was literally a life-changing experience for me I lost a pile of weight my joints suddenly started to uh, be pain-free uh, I could do stuff I hadn't done for a long time run long distances bike long distances I could run up the stairs I, I got very fit and suddenly the weight coming off I had to start uh, I got training again and uh, entered a, a Toronto marathon I did round the bay race and a couple of long extended bike races and uh, figured I'd, I'd get into uh, triathlon from there as well. The diet made a significant contribution. And, um, you know, I think being an arthritis sufferer, I wanted to uh, really get uh, do something for that organization because I, I recognized what it was like to suffer with arthritis. And at the same time, my 14-year-old my stepdaughter, Erin, she was diagnosed last year with rheumatoid arthritis. And it's something that she's, uh, she's fighting with at the moment. So... There's a, there's a vested interest in that organization through myself being a, a sufferer and also through someone who's very close to me also suffering right. with it. So. Well, I'd love to speak with her. I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis when I was five years old. Yeah. I'm 53 now, so what's that, 48 years. I've had four hips replaced, four knees, yeah. two shoulders, been in the hospital about 40 times, and it affects every joint from my jaw to my toes. Well, I, was, I was actually having a massage this morning, a um, regular massage as part of the training, and the lady I was there, she said her three-year-old son was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. He's in his 20s now, but a while ago. And um, Yeah, so, so it, it, you know, it, it's often a, mis, it's a common misconception that arthritis is something that afflicts older people. Uh, right. Absolutely not. You know, it's something I wasn't aware of, just how young in life people can be afflicted by this, and that's something else that's driven me towards what I, you know, what I do with regards to raising money. Right, mostly women. I think 70, 80% of people, 80%, I think, of people with arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, are women. So I always used to ask God, why not my sister? She's a pain in the neck. Why didn't he give it to her? <laughs> he never answered that question for me. But uh, the Arthritis Society is an amazing organization. I remember 48 years ago when I got diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, there were not a lot of rheumatologists around and there was not as much research as there has been in that time. And so the physiotherapist from the Arthritis Society showed up at our place and and, and she was the lifeblood for my mother and my parents to look after me with this disease that very few people had heard of, especially for kids and wasn't a lot of rheumatologists. So an amazing organization and uh, uh, stay in touch with them, they, especially for your stepdaughter, uh, um, they have amazing resources, uh, amazing seminars, courses. I used to lead a lot of them, and uh, very, very worthy organization. So I think it's uh, arthritis.ca is their website. It Pretty is, easy yeah. to remember. They were very Arth impressive. I mean, it, it was, I'm, I must admit that it was. Um, I was very fortunate when I started working with arthritis society. Before I realized that Erin was been had been diagnosed with it, that uh, I mentioned to them that she suddenly had this diagnosis. And, they were fantastic. They they jumped into action. I had a couple of contacts there who got me uh, got us into sick kids and uh, connected us up and uh, were very very instrumental in helping out in the early stages, which I think 
certainly um, some of the pressure on the family to try and get something uh, moving forward. But uh, she does okay. She's uh, uh, she's very active as much as she can be, but it's something that's obviously constant concern to us. Big, yeah, big, big time. And uh, I know all the challenges that, of that, so uh, I, she's going to have to be strong and determined and never give up. And uh, I think uh, you doing uh, triathlon. Uh, can help build that in you and probably, hopefully, in her as well. So uh, you also run a, a, your own company, Tempo One Solutions. Uh, what's the website for that? Uh, TempoOneSolutions.com. It's T-M-P-O, uh, the digit one. It's a musical term, solutions.com. Uh, we specialize in uh, leadership development skills alongside my role with uh, Crestcom International, which is a global company, uh, crestcom.com or .ca is a Canada uh, version of that. Uh, it's a global company based out of Denver, Colorado. Um, I work with uh, local representatives in Canada. Uh, I have a client base that's spread across North America, uh, several hundred clients. Um, and my own work with Tempo One Solutions uh, also reaches out to a number of clients. We basically work with organizations to turn their managers into leaders. Uh, a lot of people in business um, get promoted for very good reasons. Uh, and suddenly they're in charge of the people who they've been very close friends with, who they've worked alongside. They may have joined the company with several years before, and suddenly they're in a leadership position. So we uh, we work with them in a, in a program that helps them grow and build uh, their skills um, as leaders. Um, there's very We find there's a large difference between being a manager and being a leader. And uh, it comes from my background in the military. As uh, an officer in the military, obviously leadership skills are, are a key part of uh, everything that we do. But uh, another really key part is to develop the people beneath you. And I think that's always been a, um, a root cause of my sort of raison d'etre for being a, a leader in the military, was to grow and build the people who worked for me. And uh, through that, really, I, I took the skills I learned in the military and uh, applied them into the business context. And uh, it's been very successful. We've had a, a great 10 years. Uh, the last couple of years have been uh, our best ever. And uh, majority of our business comes from referrals. We work with organisations, and they they see we do a good job, and they're very keen to tell other people about what we do, especially in the business world, where you rely on other companies being successful and having an engaged workforce, and that comes from effective leadership. So I, I love the job. I love working with clients and seeing them grow and develop, and see them become engaged. And when I see young managers, um, you know, who've been in leadership for a couple of years and have struggled, it's quite stressful for them to turn around to me and say, "Hey." The stuff you've done with it has been phenomenal. My life has changed. My team have, have grown and built. It just feels good when teams do things without me having to tell them what to do because they're engaged in what they do. So it's a very rewarding job as well and uh, something that uh, I thoroughly enjoy doing, having taken skills in the military and applied them in the business context. All right, amazing. And uh, I can understand a lot of what you do. I was uh, uh, working at a management consultant, Carpedia, and uh, a couple of years uh, and then got promoted to the business development manager, so eight or ten people that I were close, close friends that I partied with now I was managing, and uh, it sucked. I didn't really like it. Now I was uh, supposed to manage people who are, like, really, really close friends, and, uh, geez, I decided after that, geez, it's hard enough to... And it was in sales, so it's hard enough to look after my own sales, let alone everybody else's, and it was like... I don't want to do this again. So, what are some of the skills, you, uh, strategies, habits you're teaching these people? Because it happens a lot. You're good at what you do. You get promoted. Now you're like, 
holy cow, I was good at what I did, but now I gotta be good at managing my buddies and they're gonna hate me. I remember uh, my first promotion in the military is before I was commissioned to be an officer. I was uh, a musician in the Royal Marines Band and we were on board ship and we were away for, for seven months. And halfway through the trip, I was promoted to corporal. And uh, up until that day, I was responsible for sweeping the deck and polishing stuff and cleaning stuff. And then the day after I was promoted, I was in charge of other people doing it. And uh, that's a big challenge because being a corporal on the, on the mess deck of the ship, you, you were there all the time, 24 hours, seven uh, seven days a week. You couldn't go home and just come into work the next day. You, you were there living with the guys, eating with the guys, sleeping in the same mess deck as the guys, and uh, there's no escape. Suddenly, you uh, you know, you found out mm-hmm. who your real friends were because they respected your position. So that was, that was quite tough. And when people in business tell me, oh, it's tough, you know, I used to be part of the team, now I'm in charge of the team. I said, well, you get to go home at night and get home at weekends. You get away from it. Yeah, I said, well, the first time I got promoted, I was there for another three and a half months. I've seen these guys, guys every minute of every hour of every day. So uh, I think they understand some of the challenges that you face when you explain things in, uh, in a true way like that. Right. Now, uh, you've got a lot of uh, uh, things on the go with your music, uh, military, and the sports background, uh, as well as the company you run. Uh, how do they all tie together? How do your how does your life musically, military, sports, uh, help you with the company you run and uh, 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 what you teach other company uh, managers how to become leaders? Well, it's uh, it really goes back many years, I guess. I was very lucky as a as a child that my parents wanted to get me into as many different things as I possibly could. I started playing music at the age of seven with the violin. When I was about nine or ten, I said I fancied playing a wind instrument as well. So my dad came over to clarinet, started getting clarinet lessons. And then I did viola and saxophone to that. I was in the scouts. I played in the youth orchestra. I played rugby. I played golf. I played cricket. Um, I was out. I used to go camping. I basically, every day was crammed from the minute I got out of bed to the minute I went to bed, crammed with activities. Um, the schoolwork wasn't particularly impressive, but uh, I was never really interested in the academic side of life. The only two things I really liked at school were music and sport, and I was relatively good at both. So uh, it seemed like a good idea to go and do something that involved both of them. So uh, my careers advisor at school said, have you ever thought of joining a military band? So it seemed like a great idea at the age of 16. So I left home at 16, joined the military, and uh, three years of very intensive musical training and all the military training that goes with it. So in an action-packed life, really, it was... From the day you join, your feet don't touch the ground for the first 12 weeks in a very intense training period. And then uh, going to my first prof- um, professional band, drawings band, um, it was just a very crazy, hectic lifestyle. And every day was different. And if you weren't making music, you were traveling to an engagement or you were training or you were practicing or you were playing sport. And, uh, I just crammed as much in as, a, as I possibly could. And, you know, life hasn't really changed. Um, I've recently stepped down as president of my youth, of my orchestra, the Mississauga Symphony Orchestra. I was president for five years. I, I do that. I volunteer for various things. I commit to sporting events. Um, I try and raise money. I obviously do the triathlons and so on. And then running a business and family life and all the things that go with that. It's a very, very active life. One thing I, I don't do very much is sit down and watch television. Um, we watch mm-hmm. a couple of things on Netflix. You know, We try and schedule in one evening a week where we maybe sit down and watch House of Cards or madmen but often that slips by it's um i live in a house with uh, my partner and uh, her, her two uh, her two children who are 17 and 15 we're all musicians 
So you have to uh, book literally book the music room here. Um, mm-hmm. French horn player and the kids play cello and flute. I play an instrument. So there's always music going on. There's always activities going on. It's very rare that we just uh, sort of vegetate in front of the TV. But one of the things I learned in the military was the capacity to plan. That's what I, uh, I I bring into the the business context is looking at you know predictable pitfalls we call it. What can you look at that's going to happen over the next uh, week, next month, the next quarter, the next year? What are those pitfalls that have happened before that you can predict and you can do something about? And one thing about uh, entering triathlons, and one of the reasons I do enter triathlons is that uh, you know, these Ironman triathlons are not cheap events. It's not just the entry fee. It's also getting to the venue. It's accommodation. You're probably staying there for three or four nights. It's entertainment for the family if they come with you. So you commit to something, and the correlation really between that and and my business world is all about creating that environment. And, you know, we teach motivation, and motivation, quite simply, is a willingness to act. The only way you can motivate somebody is to create an environment in which they choose to act. Well, I motivate myself by entering an event, and that event starts on 7 o'clock in the morning on a certain Sunday in July next year. Now, if I'm not ready, I can't call them and say, can you put that back a month? I'm not fit. Uh, they're going to start at 7 o'clock whether I'm there or not. So it's up to me to get there. So that's the environment I create. So when my alarm clock goes off at 4.30 in February and I have to drag myself to the swimming pool for two hours, it's an environment I've created because I've got an event coming up I have to train for. So it's planning is very important. And with a very busy work schedule, family commitment, and musical schedule, um, I'm literally filling in the gaps with training. So not so much this time of year where I'm kind of cruising. And I was up early this morning, did a 6K run at minus 15, I think, outside. Mm. But I've got the right equipment, off I go. Or I might go for a... Uh, a bike training in the basement on the indoor trainer or I might go for a swim I'll just take over at this time of year but once we get into January I start planning my schedule so I look at my schedule and say okay next Wednesday morning I don't have to be downtown until 10 o'clock in the morning so I can go out and do a two hour run in the morning and I will do that two hour run regardless of the weather I don't, I don't care what the weather is I always go out and run or I might say okay Wednesday I can get the 8 o'clock train so I can be in the pool at 5.30 for an hour's sort of sprint training and then uh, Saturday morning, I go to a cycle group, like a spinning group, uh, most of them are triathletes. And Sunday afternoon, I might have two hours free, so that's my two hours to do some weight training, those sorts of things. So it's literally a case of looking at the gaps, programming it in, and then uh, getting stuck into it, which is rather like business, really, planning ahead, looking at what opportunities you've got, what tasks you have to accomplish. So everything sort of blends together with the, the planning. Rather like music, I've got a, a recital coming up in... Uh, in March, where I'm playing with a string quartet, so I play every year, playing a, a Weber clarinet quintet. So I know as we get into January, February, I have to increase my clarinet practice. So again, it's going to program in. Well, I need to do an hour here, an hour there. So that hour is allocated to clarinet practice uh, and those sorts of things. It's not a random thing where I look at the end of the week and think I didn't plan that very well. I've not swam, I've not cycled, I've not run, and I'm not practicing my clarinet. I didn't plan the week very well. So uh, I don't like fastballs. I like things to be in order. And plan so that uh, everything uh, everything has a place, and consequently, that's how you fit everything in. Right, exactly. Now, uh, uh, one of my favorite people of all time, Charlie Tremendous Jones, is well known for saying that uh, readers are leaders. Uh, what are a couple of What are a couple of great leadership books that you would recommend? Well, I'm slowly working my way through um, the Winston Churchill memoirs. I think there's six wow. books. Uh, they're fairly heavy going. So uh, I, I generally read one um, every year or so. I've got uh, three under my belt so far. 
But I love reading. Um, I kind of transitioned from fiction to non-fiction about five or six years ago. Apparently, it hits all middle-aged men. They stop reading fiction and get into non-fiction. So I recently read a book about the Dam Busters raid uh, in Germany. A fascinating book. And um, now I'm just um, partway through uh, The Battle of the Atlantic by Jonathan Dimbleby. Fascinating book that talks about the... Uh, Basically, what how the Allies won the war because without the the Atlantic campaign, if they hadn't won that, then you know the Allies would probably have lost the Second World War. So, looking at the planning that goes on, not just one particular person's planning, but looking at the uh, the whole organisation, the whole strategy uh, that goes into something so major as a big military event. The next book on the shelf is uh, the book of D-Day, the latest book to be written on the, on D-Day. And on top of that, I like to mix that up with some sporting books. Uh, I recently read uh, um, some books reporting on the Lance Armstrong saga. So I read all his books years ago. The two books he wrote, it's not about the bike and every second counts. And I was an Armstrong believer at the time. And, uh, of course, that's all changed now. So now I'm reading the other side of things. People have done all the research into his background, his life, and now all the facts have come out. It's very interesting looking at that. So uh, I love the sporting books. I find them extremely motivational. I read a couple of chapters at night, and next morning I'm up and out, want to get at it. So uh, that that's really important to me. Uh, but I think the the certainly is it, it fits very well with me looking back at historical uh, facts, particularly from the last century, uh, Second World War. Uh, also, some very interesting Vietnam books as well from American military leaders in Vietnam, and talking about the mistakes mm-hmm. that they made and what they learned from that as well. Oh wow. Uh, I was in uh, Cambodia in April of this year speaking, and uh, I hear a lot about their friends over there uh, on the other side. So, uh, very interesting culture, old and interesting culture, both of them, Cambodia and Vietnam. It is very interesting, and uh, one of the things I noticed in uh, the business world is, of course, Canada is one of the most multicultural countries in the world, and just Mm -hmm. looking at the different cultures, the different backgrounds of people, the way they approach things, and kind of blending those cultures together into an effective workforce is is very, very interesting, because these cultures come with different dynamics on how they lead people and how they work with people, so... It's uh, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting and fascinating uh, way of doing things. And actually, when you've got second and third generations from different parts of the world, particularly Asia, who've got into the culture here, and they talk about how their parents used to do things when they came as immigrants, uh, it is a very interesting topic that we could have a whole radio show on. I think. Right, right exactly. And uh, you're so right about Canada. One of the things I love about us is we are the, one of the most multicultural countries in the world. But we get along. We all get along. We're Canadians. We get along well. That's one of the good things about us. And, uh, for instance, at our church, we got like 68 countries represented. And uh, everybody just gets along. And so, but, yeah, I hadn't thought of that, too. The leadership styles of people are different from different countries. So when you come here, you might, you know, you might be a good manager for some people, but the rest of you may be like, why well, he does things like that? I think that also uh, reflects music. Uh, playing with Mississauga Symphony, we have over 20 different nationalities represented in the orchestra of 90 people. Um, and also in the in the, in the the sports world, in the triathlon world, uh, you know, if you look around at the people at the start line of a, of a, a triathlon like Mont Tremblant, uh, it's incredible. You know, pretty much every culture is represented there. Um, 
But if you, you know, orchestra, one of the great things about, I love about music is, you know, A, music is the greatest team game in the world, and B, music is the greatest international language in the world. Uh, you are, you know, you cannot be a musician if you're not a team player, and uh, mm -hmm. you may not be able to speak the same verbal language as somebody next to you, but when you're playing the same notes, you are literally on the same page working with people. It's, it's a great, great team, uh, team event music. Wow, I hadn't even thought of that. But yeah, you could be in an orchestra with people you don't even speak their language, but you're still just a member of the team like everyone else. That's happened to me many times. In fact, I played a concert last year and I was playing uh, violin and I sat next to a Chinese guy who didn't speak a word of English. But um, mm -hmm. once we started playing, we were playing all the same notes together. Um, yeah, it's a fascinating concept that music is the greatest language in the world. Right, I hadn't uh, hadn't ever thought of it like that, but that's kind of uh, unique to think of it. Uh, what uh, challenges or big plans uh, are ahead for you in 2017? Well, um, business-wise, I'm going to be uh, very busy. We're just uh, closing out a few contracts this week that will set us up for a busy start to the year. We're heading off, uh, doing some, uh, some work with a number of clients around southern Ontario, and they've got offices in the U.S. as well, so potentially a little bit of travel. Um, from a musical perspective, um, I'm playing a solo with the Mississauga Symphony in uh, February the 11th. We're doing a, a pops concert, uh, sorry, symphonic pops concert, so some rock tunes and stuff. And uh, I'm going to be playing my soprano saxophone for uh, Bette Midler's classic rock tune, uh, The Wind Beneath My Wings. And then uh, in March, I'm playing a recital with a string quartet in Aurora, the Pasque String Quartet at the Aurora Cultural Center, May, March 5th. Later in March, I'm guest conductor with the Mississauga Symphony. I love conducting. Um, I do more playing than conducting, but I, I love conducting as well, so that's March 25th. And then uh, the symphony's putting on its first ever opera at the end of April at Living Arts Centre. We're putting on Carmen. We have a couple of other concerts that go on in between that as well. And uh, I'm often invited to play or conduct with other orchestras, like the York Symphony Orchestra up in the York region here, and um, some others around the uh, the area. From a, a sports perspective, um, I'll be building up the training as we get into the new year, more swimming, more running, more cycling. Uh, the first event is the Round the Bay race in Hamilton. It's a 30-kilometer race on uh, Sunday, end of March, so you take a bit of a lottery with the weather. Two years ago, it was pretty cold. Last year, it wasn't too bad. It's quite mild. So it's a 30-kilometer race all the way around the bay and back into uh, what was Cops Coliseum, so now first Ontario place. So that's at the end of March, and then at the end of April, um, I'm going to be doing the Paris Ancaster bike race. I did it four years ago, and well, I finished it. We had to carry the bike for the last five kilometers because I crashed on what's known as the the mudslide. I think it is it's a long downhill stretch. It's all off-road cycling, it's like cycle cross. Uh, it's a pretty intense uh, race. It's not too long; it's only 70 kilometers, but it's uh, it's pretty intense with regards to the terrain that you that you're going to be uh, uh, racing on. I'm doing that with a friend of mine who's actually a UCI license holder cyclist. I didn't realize until I'd signed up that this guy's a really seriously good cyclist. So I'm going to try and keep up with him because we triathletes do what we can, but some of these guys who are just cyclists are, are epic trying to keep up with them. So that's the end of April. And then uh, first triathlon is going to be beginning of June in Milton. They have a great series, Subaru series, so that's in, uh, in June. And then uh, I head off to Syracuse. Uh, two weeks after that to do the Ironman 70.3 also known as a half Ironman but uh, it's uh, known as 70.3 because 70.3 miles that you complete in uh, half the time of uh, the full Ironman so that's my warm up event for uh, the big event which comes up in July and then uh, we head off to uh, Lake Placid um, 
in uh, New York State for uh, Ironman Lake Placid in July, which is, uh, I'm really looking forward to that. The whole weekend is just phenomenal. You arrive generally on the Thursday night and then you check in on the Friday and get your wristband and get all your numbers and all your kit and then, uh, do a little bit of training, just loosen up. Saturday is just eating. I eat, eat all day Saturday. I can't eat mm-hmm. on the day of the race. I just uh, don't swim or bike or run if I've eaten too much. So I have big steak and ribs and stuff on the Saturday. And the race on Sunday, we head home on the Monday. And then uh, at the end of uh, end of October, I'm going to be doing something that uh, I, I could have inspired to do a few months ago. And uh, the more I think about it, or the more I thought about it, the more I, uh, I felt I wanted to do it. And uh, it's again to raise money for the Arthritis Society. But what I'm going to be doing on October the 22nd is the uh, Scotiabank Toronto Waterfront Marathon, uh, but I'm going to be doing it with a 20-pound pack on my back. And the reason I'm doing that is that uh, when I was diagnosed with, well, when I realized I'm suffering badly with osteoarthritis uh, five years ago, I was 20 pounds heavier than I am now. And somebody said to me that uh, trying to run with, ath- with arthritis is like carrying a heavy weight on your back. That's the impact it has on your joint. So I figured that now I've lost that weight, I'm going to carry that weight, 20 pounds, and see if, we can, if I can uh, complete this marathon uh, to stimulate what it must be like to run and raise awareness for arthritis. And um, I've got uh, going to be starting a big fundraising campaign through the Arthritis Society, through the, uh, the marathon office itself. I'm trying to get some press coverage. I'm trying to get as much exposure as I can. I have a couple of... Iron Man friends, they're both ladies, uh, who will be at Lake Placid with me in July, and they've agreed to, they've signed up. They're going to run alongside me to pace me. It'll be a fairly slow marathon. We're not going to break any records. It's all about finishing, and um, I'm trying to convince a couple of people at the Arthritis Society. Uh, they're going to join me as well. A couple of them said they'll do the half, but I'm trying to create a scenario where I say, well, when you get down onto Lakeshore in Toronto, you'll see the division where the full marathon carry on one way, and the half marathon just bimbles up Bay Street to the finish. You're going to feel so bad when we carry on and you finish. So why don't you sign up and come into the full marathon with us? So I'm trying to convince them that they should do that. So we're doing it 22nd of October. Um, I haven't got a, a name for what the project's going to be yet. I'm still working on that. But basically, uh, the working title is Loaded Marathon. So it's going to be loaded up with 20 pounds to simulate what it must be like to run a marathon with arthritis, carrying the weight that I lost over the last five years since I was suffering and showing people uh, what they can do to, uh, to to try and improve their lives through improved diet and so on. Wow. That is a busy schedule. Oh, yeah. Nice. Very good. Uh, your website again. Uh, my personal website for the, the business is tempo1solutions.com. Uh, um, we will also have a page for the fundraising, that's not up yet, but uh, if you keep an eye on uh, arthritis through LinkedIn and through Twitter, um, and I'll probably promote it on my own company website as well. But um, once we get a page up and running on the Arthritis Society, then uh, people can donate. Um, we got $4,000 last year. Uh, I certainly want to beat that uh, this year. I want to get much higher than that if I possibly can and raise as much money as I can for, uh, for this great course. Nice. Well, uh, I'll be following and I'll be uh, promoting. So hopefully that helps. And uh, keep up the uh, keep up the amazing work. So tempo1solutions.com, right? That's correct, yeah. Perfect. Thanks a lot for your time, uh, Paul. Uh, amazing. You're so busy. Uh, and yet 
uh, it seems like you're able to manage them all effectively and still be able to uh, uh, have some time off or spare time here and there uh, with your family. So good for you. Uh, thank you so much for your time today and good luck uh, with your fundraising for the Arthritis Society next year. Life's not a rehearsal. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Journey to Success Radio. If you or anyone you know would like to be interviewed for the show, email tom at tomtutall.com for details.